Thank you for leading us this morning, worship team. Again, we wish you a happy new year, and I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 15. We will begin this year the same way that we started out last year in the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at Acts 15, verses 1 to 12. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't have your own copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to look at the chairs around you. About every third chair, there's a small black book that's a Bible. And that's our gift to you this morning if you don't own a copy of God's Word. We're glad you're joining us. Acts chapter number 15, verses 1 to 12. This past week, I was scrolling on social media when I came across a sermon clip from prosperity gospel preacher Jesse Duplantis. Now, you may have heard of Jesse's name before, as he's a very popular TV preacher who is known to say some incredibly outlandish and some incredibly heretical to the Christian faith things. Yet some have concluded that Jesse's latest message included the most heretical teaching that he's ever taught. Recently, Jesse preached a Christmas season sermon titled, The Gift That Jesus Gave to His Father where he took a messianic prophecy of Christ, one that we read during the Christmas season, and he appropriated it to himself. He's quoted as saying this. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, it says, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Yet the book of Ephesians 5.1 says, Be therefore imitators of God as dear children. So when I look at Isaiah 9.6, where is the government now? It's on us. The government of the world is on mankind. And because we were made in God's image and in God's likeness, catch what he says here, you can call us wonderful counselor. Mighty God, Christ in us, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's what it means to be the gift that Jesus gave to you. See, when you are a gift of God, it gives you the ability to act like God. Now, notice the heresy here that Jesse preached. He did not say that we are made in the image of God and made to have a relationship with him. He preached that we were made to be God. That we are Jesus' gift to God, not that Jesus is God's gift to us. As you can see there on the screen, he even uses a bow to illustrate his point. As you see there, and he shares with people that when they feel unworthy, they should put on their bow and they should remember Jesus' gift to God. Now Jesse's words stand in pretty stark contrast to the prophet Isaiah who in Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are not as a bow, but as a polluted garment, or some of you may have memorized that verse as filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now that's just one of the heretical statements from this message that Jesse shared He also implied later on that having mansions in heaven signifies wealth here on this earth. 
But yet this wasn't just a one-time bad sermon from this man. The following week, which this looks to be the week before Christmas, and then he is quoted on Christmas Day by preaching a message that say, by saying that God dwells in us, quote, because we were just that good. He continues by saying that when he created, this is God, he never wanted to become an angel. Think about that. He never wanted to become a seraphim. He never wanted to become an archangel. He never wanted to become anything he created till he created us. Jesse Laters goes on to say in that message that we humans have crossed a new boundary line. He says, quote, so I'm going to say something, something going to shock you. When you see me, you see the Father, you see the Son, you see the Holy Ghost, you see God incarnate. It's called the Incarnation. Yet as we read the Bible in passages such as Isaiah 43.7, we see God saying, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And in Revelation 4.11, where it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory, not us, but God, and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now just in those few minutes of heretical teaching there, we could spend the rest of our time in actually a full sermon series just looking at what Jesse said and all the things that were wrong with it. We don't have time to do that this morning, and let me just say, if you have any questions about what Jesse shared there, and what was wrong with it, or any other prosperity gospel teacher that would be similar there, I'd love to chat with you about that after the service is over. But as we study this man, we see that he didn't hide from this teaching. In fact, the picture from this sermon that's on the screen right now is one that I took literally from Jesse's social media page. He promoted this. Now, these messages, though, are not new to Jesse. In fact, one of the reasons that Jesse came to fame in the 90s was because of his testimony and book that shared that he ascended into heaven in a cable car piloted by a blonde-haired angel, and he spent about five hours there meeting with Jesus. He shared this story several times, and the full nearly two-and-a-half-hour version on YouTube has over 1.2 million views. An article from churchleaders.com chronicles several past headlines from Jesse, including in 2018, when he asked his supporters to donate so that his ministry could afford a $54 million jet, his fourth one that he would own. And he said the reasoning behind this was so his ministry could continue to spread the gospel. In 2021, he joined fellow false teacher Kenneth Copeland on a four-day fundraising event where he said that his viewers could speed the return of Jesus by donating money. He said, quote, I honestly believe this, that the reason why Jesus hadn't come back is because people aren't giving the way God told them to give. Now, I guess in all of Jesse's Bible study, he never spent much time in the Gospels. He never spent much time in passages such as Matthew 24, 36 where it says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 
Now, some of these teachings that I've shared and many others that Jesse shares are downright silly. They're comical. But there's a reason why he continues and so many other men or women continue to share teachings such as this. It's because people continue to believe them. People continue to follow them. And because these, fo- these people who do this gain a lot of wealth following and accolades on this earth for what they're teaching here. Now, the elders here at DBC, I believe, do a very good job of making sure that we keep a tight leash of who's on the pulpit. We do that to make sure that teachers like Jesse don't come and preach here. But let's imagine for just a minute that Jesse came to Delaware, and he held some meetings that several in the congregation went to. Now, for some of you who have been around town for a while, you're saying, I don't have to imagine this because just down the block from here where they're building that new health center, I remember a guy that used to do this kind of stuff around here. A guy by the name of Leroy. But let's imagine here that several here in the congregation were stirred up by these meetings and began to share the doctrine that Jesse shared in these sermons. You share, those people shared it here amongst our congregation And others started saying, yeah, I I believe that. What are we going to do at that point? Division has been kind of sown here within the church. And where are we going to go? What are we going to do? How are we going to be able to get on the same page again? Well, thankfully, the Bible gives us a playbook for things like this that happen. We see that here in the book of Acts, and we see that false teachers aren't a new problem. We see as we studied the Gospels, as we studied the book of Mark, that Jesus encountered many of them during his time here on the earth. This is not the first time that we see the apostles dealing with them. And as well, we see in so many New Testament books that were written after the book of Acts, these admonitions of how to deal with teachers such as this. So we have a playbook. We have a set of things that we can look at and see how we deal with teachers like this. And the big question that we're going to be looking at this morning is this. How does the church settle doctrinal disagreements? Church leaders have met to settle and work through doctrinal issues throughout the ages. Both major doctrinal issues, like we'll look at here, but as well the finer points. And as we're looking at major doctrinal issues here, back about right before we got into our Christmas season, Pastor Scott preached about the first two verses of this text, where it talked about what is the true gospel. And we see that the major doctrinal issue that they're looking to address here is the biggest doctrinal issue. What must a person do to be saved? And with the major doctrine that these Uh, church leaders are going to be discussing and with where we find ourselves here within the text we see many examples of these similar types of councils happening in the book of acts and in church history but many commentators note that here this first council is the most important one it's the most important not only because the most important doctrine is affirmed but it's here as well that we see these church leaders affirming that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's an example that we can look at and continue to follow.
So this was a much different message than what these challengers were sharing. And I want to look at what these challengers were sharing to begin our time. Let's look at chapter 15 in the first verse where it says, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These men were preaching a false gospel. And the first thing that we see this morning is that the church is plagued by false teachers. These false teachers came down and they were creating a church split, a schism in the church. Now a schism is a split or division between strongly opposed parties. And this was a severe schism because the teachers were preaching this different salvation message. And as we started studying this book of Acts, believe it or not, we actually did so on January the 2nd, 2022. I preached on that Sunday as well, and in that first message, I shared that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was the spark that started the huge fire spreading of the New Testament church. And as we see this New Testament church, we found ourselves here halfway through the book of Acts at a place in scripture where the huge flame, flame had spread not only to Jews, but also the non-Jewish people. We call them Gentiles. Now, these believers then believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These Gentiles trusted in Christ alone for their salvation but many of them likely hadn't been circumcised or followed the other rules and regulations that were followed prior to Christ's birth. This caused issues within the church and likely for some who had previously followed all those rules and regulations found that teaching more attractive. False teachers always come with attractive teaching. In this case, these false teachers were appealing to an emotion to a sense to something that some of these people previously believed. As we look at Jesse, what emotion was he playing to during that day? What feelings was he, was he uh, appealing towards? The same that Satan was in the garden. You can be like God. Yet, as we look at these believers here, as we look at these teachers some of them what I like to call, had what I like to call an Old Testament hangover. Now, this issue plagued many after the birth of Christ, or after the life of Christ, where although Christ had fulfilled the law found in the Old Testament by dying on the cross for our sins, by being buried and risen again, some still held to these other rules and regulations that they had grown with. And according to these beliefs here, you had to be circumcised, and then you had to hold to the Mosaic law. According to what these teachers were teaching, you wouldn't be saved otherwise. Of this, the MacArthur, Bible, or the MacArthur New Testament commentary shares this, the wholesale entrance of Gentiles into the church was very disturbing and threatening to some of the Jewish believers. Many believe that the Gentiles who wanted to become Christians had to first become Jewish proselytes. They saw Christianity as the culmination of Judaism, that Gentiles were short-circuiting the process and becoming Christians without first becoming Jewish proselytes shocked and overwhelmed them. 
They could not conceive that pagans could simply enter into the church and immediately be on an equal basis with the Jewish believers. That seemed unfair to those who had devoted their lives to keeping God's law. They feared, too, that an increasingly Gentile church, Jewish culture, traditions, and influences would be lost. This teaching that these people had was one that was attractive because it held to the things that these people had strongly staked so much of their life on. But yet as we look at their teaching, we can contrast it with passages such as John chapter 5, verse 24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Interestingly as well, as we look at these men and as we study them, Pastor Scott previously shared as we looked at this text that these men had no authority from the church of Jerusalem. As if you were to look in, down into chapter 15, verse 24, it shares with us that, that they had no authority from Jerusalem, yet they were dogmatically proclaiming this doctrine that was causing divisions in the church. So these were men who came, who had an authority that wasn't given to them by anything, but they were preaching a message that was sowing division within the church. So what happens when guys like this come around? Well, the next thing that we see is that the church is gifted with true, with godly leaders. That godly leadership is a blessing of God that he has given us in the church. Let's look down at verses 2 and 3 here within the text. It says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Jews and brought great joy to all the brothers. There were godly leaders here within the church. The first one that we see here is Paul. And I'm going to say if there was any man in the early New Testament church that was going to be addressing something like this, I would want Paul to be one of those men. That's because Paul likely knew the law of Moses better than any of the other teachers during that time. In fact, he knew it so well that he spent part of his life taking time to prosecute and persecute those who didn't follow it before being dramatically saved by God on the Damascus Road. Yet we see another man named Barnabas, named Son of Encouragement. And Barnabas was a godly man who we see coming alongside Paul, serving with him on the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. He's a man who in Acts 14, 14, we see is named as an apostle. And as Paul and Barnabas and these other leaders went to these men, it shares with us that they had no small dissension or disagreement. This wasn't something that was just kind of like a little argument in the church, something that they could agree to disagree upon. This was a major deal. Paul and Barnabas hotly debated with these men, strongly contesting what they had to say. Yet these men were bold and continued to share their false gospel. What, go, what was going on here was a major, major deal. In fact, some commentators note that these events formed the center of the book of Acts, both structurally and theologically. 
the decisions that were made regarding this issue would be impactful for the life of the church for generations to come. Now this led Paul and Barnabas, and as we read here, some of the others. Now as we read some of the others here, it's likely believed that these are other believers who would go with Paul and Barnabas, and they would be witnesses who would make sure that they got all the facts straight and completely told the truth. They were the fact checkers of the day. And they were headed to Jerusalem, which based on the modern measurements that we would have today, would be about a 408-mile walk. So this was a significant enough thing that they were going to take this long journey into Jerusalem. And yet, as they were doing so, I think it's very interesting what we see there in verse, in verse 3. It shares with us that as they were be, or being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now, I want to share a point here that's not a main point of the text, but something that I find very interesting. And that what we see here is that the lives of godly leaders are characterized by ministry. These church leaders were ones that were spending their time, yes, discerning correct doctrine, but as they had this long journey ahead of themselves, they made it a point to stop and edify local churches during their travel for the important responsibility that God had given them. They took very seriously, but as well they took seriously their opportunity to be a blessing to the other believers there. Now, as they did this, as they talked about these Gentile conversions that were made, it also showed support for the doctrine that these other believers believed as well. As the news of these Gentile conversions, it shares with us, brought great joy to other churches. And so what we see from the example of these men is that Christian ministry, such as building up the church, was a regular part of their lives. It was something that they took seriously, and as well, as we look here in our modern context, it's something that we take seriously as well as we look for men to serve as elders. We look for men who are qualified for the position, who are sharing what God is doing in their lives, in the lives of those within their church, and the lives of others that they know, and who are making an impact in their families, in their church, and in their community. And yet with that as well, we see that the church is gifted with a plurality of leaders. There is a plurality, a number of leaders that God has gifted to the church. It says in verse 4, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So they continued that declaration of the work of God as well with these leaders. But we see a plurality of leadership and that there were more guys that were running this show than just Paul and Barnabas. There were Paul and Barnabas, apostles entrusted with this task of bringing together this council. But there were the godly men who were traveling with them, making sure the message was correct. There were also the elders in the church. And earlier, as we studied in Acts 14, we see that even in the early part of the church, there were elders who were charged with being spiritual overseers. From the beginning of days to now, we see that God created the church to have a plurality of leadership. That's not just a one-man band of leadership. 
and humbly we see Paul and Barnabas putting themselves underneath this leadership structure. And I think it's interesting that we notice that the congregation had a role in this as well. Because as we see these members of the congregation being charged with the task of making sure that Paul and Barnabas were correctly relaying this information, I think that you can make a strong argument that in some ways we see that within the New Testament church today. Whereas if I'm up here this morning and I'm speaking something that's direct heresy, you as a congregant have the opportunity, and I would dare say responsibility, to call me out on that. To come forward at a point and say, that's wrong. This is what the Bible actually says on these matters, to, in a sense, be a fact checker. Now, as we think about our local congregation here, as we think about our current context, we would say here at Delaware Bible Church, we have a hybrid church government structure. We're kind of in between two of them, that being an elder-led church and a congregationally-led church. Now, we're elder-led, we would say, but you as a congregant, if you're a member here of our church, you have the opportunity <clears throat> to vote and affirm specific decisions that are made here. Those include five different things, doctrinal changes to our church, the annual operating budget, hiring a pastor, taking on debt, or any other matter that the elders deem appropriate for the congregation to be able to vote on. Now, as we see our plurality of leadership, we see that the elders are a godly group of men who give of their time to serve in ministry, not only here, but also in their homes and ministries outside the church. You as the congregation, then, aid in holding us accountable. You do so by, first of all, as we release a name of a new man that we would like to serve on the elder board, telling us if any of them are disqualified from doing so. But as well, as I shared, if I am preaching heresy here, or if you see an elder in direct sin, you should tell us about that. That man is not qualified to serve at that point, or should be corrected. Now, similarly to the men in this text, our elders gather to consider the needs of the church and how we can best lead here. I love the way that John Piper describes the task of an elder he says that the task of an elder is to feed and lead the congregation. So here, we typically gather once a month, and we do that. We pray. We follow up with people in the church. We share ministry responsibility updates. We spend time studying God's word, and at times, much like these men, we discern difficult topics. We debate different matters of theology and needs in the church. And that's what these men are gathered to do. As next we see that the church settles doctrinal disagreements through the work of godly leaders. And the work that these men were doing was several things. The first thing that they were doing was they, that they were going to listen to the concerns of the congregation. And godly leaders listen to their congregation and the concerns that they have. Verse 5 says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and in order to keep the law of Moses. Now, while we, don't, while we don't know if these men who came down and shared the 
these teachings at the beginning of this text were Pharisees, we see that this teaching likely caught on because it shares here within verse 5, some of the believers belong to the party of the Pharisees. So a couple things to notice here. Number one, they were believers. They were followers of Christ. But they also came from being Pharisees. So their thinking was muddied on this topic based on their previous associations. And this can be a very common thing when you're dealing with folks who have doctrinal concerns, who may not look at our doctrinal statement and be in full agreement. And that's why, then, the next point that we see is that godly leaders discern and debate. Because as these men gathered, they discerned and debate the theological issues at hand. Verse 6 says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, and we'll stop right there. But godly leaders discern and debate these matters. They gathered together to work through them, and much time was given through this pro- to this process. It shares that there was much debate. I can imagine, like some of our elders meeting some nights, we look at the clock and say, wow, we spent that long debating and addressing that topic? And I would say that's a good thing because it shares that they took their task very seriously and something that they took their time to work through. So again, thinking of our modern illustration, let's talk through what we would do in such a circumstance. So Jesse Duplantis comes to town. He begins teaching, and he teaches what he shared in those other messages, that Christians can actually become God, which, by the way, other cults believe. This is something that the Mormons believe. Now, several from this church attend Jesse's meetings, and they start sharing this doctrine here. And we have a church information meeting where some of you stand up and say that you agree with Jesse's teachings, despite it being completely different than what we say in our doctrinal statement. What's going to happen at that point? Well, just like the example that we see here within the text, it's at that point that the elders are going to meet and they are going to discern what they believe to be the truth in this matter based on the word of God. We would gather together and we would debate and we would decide the proper God-honoring response and we would share that with that congregation. Now this happens from time to time at our meetings and I remember a couple months ago that there was a long and spirited debate about an issue where at the end of our time, Pastor Scott shared a phrase that has stuck with me ever since. He shared this, that a plurality of leadership in the church is a feature of and not a flaw. In God's design, God has gifted us with more than one leader, and he's done that in such a way that we can discern, debate, and make wise decisions to lead and shepherd the church. Proverbs 11, verse 4 says this, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Now, as we look at this text, we don't know the makeup of the elder board mentioned here within the text, but I'm going to venture a guess that they would be similar to the elder board that makes up this church. They were a group of men who were mature in their faith and qualified to serve, having different ages, backgrounds, experiences, and yet they were all gathered together to lead the church 
and glorifying the one true God. Now there are times where as we look at issues such as this, we would say that there's going to be disagreements, that every elder may not come to exactly the same conclusion, but in God's design we pray for wisdom and we work through these issues. We attack them. We don't wait and see what happens with too many folks, just believe this and see what happens to our church. And in just over nine years here, serving here at DBC and being on the elder board, I can tell you this, that when you have 10 to 12 godly men in the room who believe and hold to the same doctrine and who address these topics, it's very likely that they're going to make the correct God-honoring decision. And if they don't, I can promise you that they're going to be humble enough to admit that and correct that. God has given us the opportunity to have a plurality of leadership, and that's a gift. And yes, it may mean at times that things take longer. Yes, it may mean at times that things take a, take, not only take a while to get done, but we listen to a lot of people and get a lot of advice. But as well, I would say it's a, it's a method that God has given us as well to protect the church. And so as we look at this text here, we see these men gathering to discern, to debate, and we see as well that they are led by sound doctrine. Now, this was a long debate that was shared here. It says that after there had been much debate, so much debate tells me this was a long meeting. And at the end of that meeting, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now it's speculation on my part, but I can imagine that this debate went many different directions over the many hours that they met. Sides were heard, the matter was discussed, and then Peter stood up and summarized the foundation of the Christian faith. What do we see Peter doing here? He preached the gospel. And what we see is that sound doctrine stems from the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to have true and proper theology, look back to the gospel. Peter preached in verse 7. We see him preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He said, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice to you that by my mouth, that by my preaching, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believed. Peter preached this good news, and not only Jews, but Gentiles were saved. Verse 8 shares with us that God saw the genuineness of their faith and conversion and gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 9, then, Peter was clear that God now made no distinction between the Jews and Gentiles regarding their salvation. He, it says in 9, he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed 
their heart by faith. It was now clear that salvation was available to all. And praise the Lord, the same is true today. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 10 say, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or not a Jew. It doesn't matter your background. Just as we see here within the book of Acts, all that matters is is if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is our resurrected Lord. These men were held to sound doctrine, and that doctrine stemmed from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as well, these godly leaders looked out for traps. There's a lot of traps out there within the Christian faith, as there's a lot of false teachers out there. And these godly leaders looked for traps. Verses 10 to 11 say, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter points these men back to the gospel and then points them to the trap that they were looking here. These teachers were trying to trap them into believing this new set of doctrine that was contrary to the teaching of Christ. And Peter shared that those who were holding to this doctrine were putting to God to the test. Putting him to the test by placing a yoke that the Gentiles or no previous generation had to experience. Now a yoke here within the text would be an illustration that most of these men would have understood and that a yoke was a heavy harness that was used to put animals in submission towards something. If a yoke was placed on an animal, he would be designated for a specific task. It may be a yoke that's placed on for travel, or a yoke that's placed on for farming, or another task that needs to be done. But yet as we study the teachings of Jesus, he says that, the fo- that his followers need to take on his yoke, And he said that that's an easy yoke. Yet this yoke, the one that the teachers were trying to add, was a new, heavy, burdensome yoke. One that was unnecessary. So, as we see traps like this, as traps like this come upon the New Testament church, and specifically here at Delaware Bible Church, if something like that were to happen, where Jesse were to come in and he were to preach this doctrine and it would cause division here. It would then be the responsibilities of the elders in the church to see the errors there, to see what the congregation was buying into and for us to correct it. The leadership, the elders of the church, see the trap. They are to warn you of the trap and do what they can to address the issues that arose because of that trap. That's why verses such as Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 share that the elders keep watch over you as those who must give an account. One day, the elders will be accountable to God for the way that they respond to such issues as these. Yet in verse 11, we see a beautiful text there as it says that while we, be- or we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. 
This beautiful phrase is echoed by Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 12, where it says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Godly leaders are led by sound doctrine. And as they are led by sound doctrine, they look out for traps. And the sound doctrine leads to spiritually life-changing transformations. And we see that they share those transformations with other people. Finally, we see this, that godly leaders share testimonies of the work of God. That the work that God does in the lives of believers are ones that are shared. It shares with us in verse 12 that the assemblies fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done from them among the Gentiles. Now, as the text says that the assemblies fell silent, they were silent because the arguments that were made by Peter were irrefutable. After Peter's argument was over, Paul and Barnabas shared how God had worked through them amongst the Gentiles, and it further gave evidence to the truth of what Peter shared there. God was leading his church, and he was doing so by the example of these godly men and by sound doctrine. And these signs and wonders further solidified the argument. Now, as we see these godly leaders here, as we see them focusing on sound doctrine, on focusing on testimonies and on the work of God, we also see another argument here. And then we see a decision that's made by the council. But to add a cliffhanger here, we're not going to have time for that today. And Pastor Scott will begin addressing those things and more next week. So as we conclude our time together, I just have a few other concluding applications and thoughts for you to consider. Number one, overall in this text and overall in this message, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see what you truly must be, to be what you truly must confess and believe to be a follower of Christ. And so I can't leave a text with it like this by asking you this. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior? Have you confessed with your mouth? Have you believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord? If you have not done that, I cannot think of a better thing to do on the first day of a new year than that. And I hope that if you have questions about that, that you will ask me after the service is over. I'll be right out by the door greeting people. Pastor Scott, our senior pastor who prayed, he'll be here right up front. I hope that you will make a personal decision to follow Jesus Christ this morning. It's the most important decision that you will ever make because it's the only decision that you will make that has eternal consequences. But secondly, let me ask you this. Do you have a firm grasp on the doctrines that you believe? Part of the reason that these false teachers during that time and today continue to infiltrate the church is because there's a whole lot of Christians who aren't really solid in what they believe. They get so torn and drawn astray by these things because they really don't have a strong grasp on what they believe. And so something for you to consider yourself. I, knew that I, I know that I went throughout today sharing a hypothetical illustration. But when teachers like Jesse come around, 
Do you have a firm grasp on the doctrines that you believe so that you can refute them? Do you know what you believe? Do you understand the church's doctrinal statement and why we hold to the things that we do? As you're considering your personal Bible study for this year, I would encourage you to consider if you aren't sure on those things, that you would take some time to really study them out. That maybe the best thing for you this year is not a daily Bible reading plan that goes through every single book of the Bible, but it's a daily Bible reading plan where you take our church doctrinal statement and you study out the verses that are there and you study out what it means to truly be a Christian in the gospel. Have a firm grasp on the doctrines that you believe. But finally, let me ask you to do this. Consider praying regularly for the elders and leaders here at Delaware Bible Church. One of the biggest encouragements that I receive, and I know is the case of many of the elders here, is when I hear folks within the congregation say that they're regularly praying for us. Stuff like this, while maybe we don't get into areas that are outlandish as what Jesse preached or what these uh, teachers were preaching, but guess what? Issues like this are real ones that your elders deal with here. And so I ask that you pray for them that they would be wise, that they would hold to the truth of God's word, that a regular practice of, within your prayer time would be praying for the leaders here so that they can serve and be an example as these men's were that we studied here today. Let's look to the Lord in prayer together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the years of the church, you have given us example after example of godly leaders. Lord, as we look in the book of Acts, we see men that forsook everything in their life to follow you. And I, praise, I pray that you would help rise up leaders within this congregation to do the same. In the areas of influence that we have, in our homes, in our community, in our church, Lord, help us to be an example. Help us to honor you above all. And like these men, I pray that you would help us when these false doctrines, when these errors come around, help us to address them biblically. Lord, give the elders here much wisdom and discernment as they seek to lead and feed the church. Lord, help us to not be drawn by all these different false teachers or things that are around us today. It's so easy to be done to, for that to happen but help us to hold to the truth of your word, to the doctrines that are clear within the text. Lord, I pray for this new year that you would help us to really be in our Bibles a lot, like more than we've ever been before, and that we would grow in our faith as a church. Lord, I pray that this example that we see here would be a playbook here for DBC. And that as we have heard the truth from your word this morning, that you would help us to chew on it, to think about it, and to meditate on it throughout our week and throughout this new year. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the blessing of our church. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.